Now take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Today we'll be reading Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Two accounts of a controversy, confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees on the Sabbath day. If you are used to reading uh, some of the other Gospels, you will notice that uh, Luke is uncharacteristically sparse on these two accounts. Uh, Typically, Luke is more expansive than the other Gospels. He gives us more details rather than than fewer details, um, but not here. Uh, And we are going to resist the urge to cross-reference too much with the other Gospels, because what Luke does is he actually uh, records uh, some of those same interactions later. Uh, and so we'll see some of it when we come to Luke chapter 13, chapter 14. There will be more teaching, uh, certainly some of the teaching that Jesus uh, gave. He, he had to uh, give on multiple occasions, and so Luke will pick up some of the teaching uh, that we might be missing here later. But uh, we, will, we will go with Luke's version uh, of, of these accounts uh, here today, beginning in Luke chapter 6, verse 1. And reading through Luke chapter 6, verse 11, you can find that on page 861, if you haven't already. But before we go uh, and read God's word, please join me in prayer. O righteous Lord, we thank you for this gift of your word. We pray that it is indeed living and active, you would use it uh, to uh, work life into your people. We pray that you would use it by your Holy Spirit uh, to quicken us. Uh, to cause us to look more to Christ and less to ourselves. Uh, Help us to see the Lord of the Sabbath today uh, and to consider how we uh, can serve you on this your day, even as we gather together, and how we can be submitted to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. On a Sabbath... While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence It was not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and gave it to those who were with him, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another, what they might do to Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. In uh, 2006, a man by the name of Michael Sparks walked into a thrift store uh, outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and he paid $2.48 for a faded copy of the Declaration of Independence. And he bought it because he liked it, Uh, And then later, on a whim, he took it to have it appraised. 
Uh, and as it turns out, his $3 find was an engraving uh, that was taken directly from the original Declaration of Independence. It was one of an original run of 200 documents that were commissioned in 1860 by John Quincy Adams uh, to be given to members of the government. Uh, and experts confirmed that the one that he picked up was actually only the 36th known surviving remnant of the original 200,000 that were made. And so Michael Sparks did exactly what you would have done. He sold that sucker, quick, uh, for $478,000. And sometimes you hear stories about this. That's the, uh, the joy of watching Antiques Roadshow. You always want to see that one person who found something in their grandparents' attic that everybody thought was worthless that turns out to be a masterpiece. Uh, but from time to time, you hear about somebody who, who finds a treasure that everybody else has overlooked, and, and it makes you wonder how something that's so significant and valuable could be hidden for so long. I think that's a pretty good illustration of the Sabbath day in our current culture. Uh, the Sabbath, the Lord's day, is a divine gift. It's given for the refreshment and the worship of God's people. It is a treasure uh, meant to build God's people in wholeness and in holiness. And yet in our culture, many people think that it's simply a throwaway. It's the sort of thing that you get at a yard sale, and when you're done with it, you, you just donate it. You make room for some other exciting thing uh, that you want to fill your life with. But that wasn't always the case uh, in the history of the church. I mean, if you go back even just 75 years, 100 years, it didn't matter if you were Presbyterian or Methodist or Episcopalian or Baptist or Congregational or, or Roman Catholic or Fundamentalist. Everybody viewed the Sabbath day as a treasure. Everybody guarded the Sabbath day as something that was meant to be kept and meant to be treasured. And now it's minimized and it's cast aside. Well, there is the, there's the stodgy remnant, right? Uh, those of us, that small group uh, of believers who are fighting an uphill battle trying to convince American Christianity that the Sabbath is still worth holding on to. But the problem is that it's hard to protect the Sabbath without also distorting the Sabbath. And that's what happened in Jesus' day. That was the case. There was a small, committed, very influential group of Jews who were sounding the rally cry for protecting the Sabbath. They were campaigning for God's day of rest for the Jewish people. And to be honest, we, we tend to, uh, to give the Pharisees a bad rap, but they were onto something good. They were at least, uh, you know, in, in their hard-hearted, legalistic, misguided way, they were, they were trending in the right direction of trying to hold on to a gift that the Lord had given to his people. And they wanted to keep people from abusing the Sabbath and ignoring the Sabbath. And, and in their zeal, uh, the problem is that they forgot two of the most important things that we need to know about the Sabbath day. They forgot who the Sabbath belongs to, and they forgot what the Sabbath is meant for. And you can look all throughout the rest of the Gospels, and every interaction, every controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders will come down to one of these two issues. The controversy in the New Testament between Jesus and the Pharisees was never about, is the Sabbath day still binding on God's people? The controversy was never about, well, is is the Lord's Day, is the Sabbath day part of the moral law or is it just part of the ceremonial law that we no longer have to, to pay attention to? It always came down uh, to who the Sabbath belonged to and what the Sabbath was meant for. And from those two, two fountains flow all the significance of the Lord's Day. And, and in that is, is all the potential 
uh, for abuse and neglect and legalism when we forget that the Sabbath is God's day and it's his day for mercy. Now, you've probably guessed uh, our sermon has two points today. Uh, and this is exactly what we're going to look like. We're going to learn first in this first section, verses 1 through 5, uh, that the Sabbath day belongs to Jesus. Secondly, we're, we're going to learn that the Sabbath day is meant for mercy. So the Sabbath day belongs to Jesus, and the Sabbath day is meant for mercy. Now, we see the controversy in the first five verses. It begins uh, in verse 1, and it begins with something small, just a snack, just a few handfuls of grain as the disciples are walking on some Sabbath day, probably from the synagogue or to the synagogue, because that's where Jesus typically was. He was with the gathered people on the Lord's Day. And as they walked, uh, the disciples grabbed a few handfuls of grain, and some of the Pharisees said, verse 2, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, you probably are aware uh, that the Pharisees were not concerned with, with theft. They weren't worried uh, that the disciples were eating grain that didn't belong to them because the law of Moses explicitly said that if you were in one of your neighbor's fields and you were hungry, you were free to take as much as you liked. If you were in his, uh, in his vineyard, you could eat as many grapes as you desired. If you were in his grain field, you could eat as much grain as you desired. You simply couldn't come back later and fill your storehouses. That would be theft. But what they're doing is, is perfectly fine. So the problem in the minds of the Pharisees is not that the disciples are stealing grain, but rather that they are working to get it. That's the controversy. It has to do with the work involved in getting the grain from the fields to their faces. That's why Luke explicitly says uh, that they plucked, they rubbed, and they ate. And according to the Pharisees, these were all violations of the Sabbath day. Four kinds of work that were all forbidden on the Lord's day. They were harvesting when they plucked the grain. Uh, they were threshing and winnowing when they rubbed the grain uh, in their palms to separate the kernel and the husk and maybe, maybe blew away the chaff or whatever it was that they did. And then they were preparing food by putting it in their mouths. And so four infractions in every single handful. And from our vantage point, uh, the whole thing seems almost silly. But uh, you need to remember that, uh, that this was a really serious accusation. Now, you could read the Old Testament and you could find people on the Sabbath day being stoned to death because they broke the Sabbath, because they collected firewood, because they, uh, they did this thing or that thing, and they worked on the Sabbath. This was a, a serious accusation. It was so serious that Nehemiah uh, claimed that the Sabbath was at least partly to blame for the Babylonian exile. This is what we read in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah says, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city, now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So in the Pharisaical mind, this is what was at stake. The Sabbath was like a border, a fence that kept God's wrath at bay. And as long as you maintained the Sabbath, the Lord would be happy. And, and if, you, if you didn't keep the Sabbath, this was one of the things that they were afraid, that God's wrath would come. And so for them, this little snack isn't just a trifling thing. This is life and death. This is blessing and curse, and it's all in a quarter cup full of barley. Now, I, I mentioned already that the Pharisees were at least trending in the right direction, misguided 
as they were, and, and they were. God had commanded rest on the Sabbath, and it, and it was a commandment of the Lord, but it's clear from the way that they are interacting with Jesus and the way that Jesus is interacting with them that they have gone well beyond what the law had said, and they've entered into the realm of legalism. If their issue was just with the law of God, there would have been no controversy with Jesus. What we read in the scriptures is that Jesus is the son who loves to offer obedience to the Father. Jesus is the one who delights in the law of God. He loves the law of God. He came to fulfill the law of God in every tiny, minute detail, every jot and every tittle was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so if they were just dealing with the law, there would be no controversy between them and Jesus. But Jesus has a problem with anybody who attempts to interpret the law as though it belonged to them and not to the Lord. That's what legalism does. Legalism refuses to submit to the law as something that we obey, but rather it tries to hold on to the law as a tool that we use, either to, to gain some, uh, some outcome from the Lord or to keep others in line. Legalism makes God's law and his directions and his his commandments for us, it makes us a human tool, a formula of obedience to produce predictable results. And this is the way that it works. Do you want to be financially secure for the rest of your life? Well, it's easy, really. All you have to do is make sure that you tithe at least 10% pre-tax, and then God will be bound to take care of you. You want to have children who will be obedient and submissive and who will never give you grief. It's easy. Just teach them the catechism. Make sure they can, uh, they can memorize those answers and get all that stuff stuffed into their head and they will never give you a hard time as they grow older. You want to be free from depression and temptation and indwelling sin. It's simple. It's easy. Make sure that every morning you read at least two chapters of Scripture and at least every other day you pray for 15 minutes. And then it's guaranteed. Everything just works out. Now, I'm not... I'm not against tithing, I'm not against catechisms, I'm not against personal quiet time. But we all ought to be against any approach to the Lord that, that makes this sort of formula of cause and effect that would bind God to what we are doing, that we would say, look, I've done this for you, now you are obligated to do this for me. That's what legalism does. It reduces God and his influence in our lives to this cause and effect relationship. And that was the pharisaical uh, approach to the Sabbath. They said, do you want your nation to be strong and independent and morally upright? It's simple. You figure out which actions are involved in keeping and not keeping the Sabbath and make sure you get those in minute detail and then make sure that everybody you know keeps those rules to a T and nobody steps out of line and then everything will go well with the people. And that's exactly what they did. You can, you can still read the, the rabbi's writings today. And you can read the 39 different categories. They call them the 40 less one. The 39 different categories uh, that they forbade on the Sabbath. Things that you ought not to do. And it deals with uh, harvesting and threshing and things like this. But then it goes on. Now things like grinding and sifting and kneading and baking. And shearing and bleaching and combing and dyeing and spinning and warping and weaving. And sewing two stitches or tearing two stitches. If it's just one, it's okay. But two, uh, two that's work. Writing two letters, not not a, a handwritten letter, but a single character, writing two characters or erasing two characters with the intent to write two characters. And, and, and you can see this, and on it went 39 different categories, and each category is multiplied hundreds of times with all of these tiny, minute details about what was work and what was not work. In fact, in, in these writings, one of the rabbis even admits that their Sabbath regulations are like, quote, mountains 
hanging by a hair. Because the law was so scanty, and in the place of the law, they added human regulation. Mountains hanging by a single hair. That's what they admitted their own Sabbath regulations were like. But as soon as anybody stepped over the boundary of the rules that the Pharisees and their teachers had hung on to Scripture, they were ready to wrestle them into submission for the sake of Israel, because don't you know what will happen if you run afoul of the Sabbath? What are the Pharisees like? Well, they're like that, that distrusting servant that Jesus talked about in his parable. Matthew 25, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. You reap where you don't sow, and you gather where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. They were like the untrusting servant. They didn't entrust themselves to the mercy of the Lord. Instead, they treated what was God's, the Sabbath day, and his commandments about the Sabbath day, they treated that as though it were their own as though they had to protect it from everyone else, including themselves, and that's what legalism does. It relies on obedience rather than God's mercy to guarantee a predictable outcome from the Lord. And it also uses obedience to keep your opponents in check. That's the, the subtext of both of these, but you see it more clearly in the second section in verse 7. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. And legalism does that. It treats God's law and his commandments as though it belongs to us. Not always for the sake of pursuing holiness, but uh, for, the, for the sake of pressuring and demonizing those with whom you, degree, you disagree. And that's what they were doing, even in this grain field. Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus' response is to remind them, uh, not so subtly, to remind them that the Sabbath actually belongs to him. That's the point of, of what he says. And his response uh, comes in two ways. The first thing he does is that he exposes their inconsistency. And secondly, he, he exposes their ignorance. Now, we see that inconsistency. You could read it later. Uh, it's 1 Kings chapter 21. You probably remember the story. Uh, David is on the run from Saul. He has fled in haste after Jonathan has just told him, yes, actually, my father does want to kill you, and he is coming after you. And so David took off to be gathered to his men, and he had no provisions, he had no food, he had no weapons, and he stopped along the way where the priests were, where the tabernacle of God was, seeking provision, and he was allowed by the priest who was there to take of the bread of the presence. Now, that was a big deal. The law explicitly said that no one but the priests were able to eat the bread of the presence. There were 12 loaves that were replaced on a weekly basis, normally on the Sabbath, to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and their presence before the Lord. It was put on a table in the inner sanctuary of the temple before the presence of God, and only the priests, consecrated and set apart, were able to eat this, and yet David was allowed. He and his men were in need, and they were on a mission, and the Lord provided for them, even though the ceremonial law was broken in the process. Now, some people like to point out, they think that Jesus quoted this story as a way to say, see, the law doesn't matter all that much. David broke the law, so I can break the law, but that's not what's going on at all. Jesus is, is making a comparison between lesser and greater, or between greater and lesser if you're depending on, you're talking about what they did or who we're talking about. Because what you have is, is a lesser person committing a greater offense. That's the example of David. And now you have in Jesus a much greater person not actually committing an offense at all, and he's exposing their inconsistency. 
Because none of the Pharisees would have pointed to David and said, David is at fault. No, he was the Lord's anointed. He was given provision by the priest of God. It was all copacetic. It was all on the up and up. And he was in need. And nobody would say, well, David really did the wrong thing here, even though the law was actually broken. And if they would not point the finger at David, how dare they point the finger at Jesus, who was the Lord's anointed and was not breaking the law? Just man's interpretation, just some of the mountain that they had hung upon this scriptural hair. So exposes their inconsistency. And how could they dream of pointing at Jesus in judgment if they wouldn't say the same thing about David? But then he exposes their ignorance. Now don't miss the significance of verse 5. He said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, it's not surprising to me. I'm not to be surprising to you that when Jesus is finally turned over by the Jewish authorities uh, to the Romans to be executed, that the charge that the Jews level against him in their court is not the charge of sedition or overthrowing the government, but it's the charge of blasphemy, of claiming to be like God or equal to God. And it's not surprising because Jesus said stuff like this. He said stuff that would have been blasphemy of the highest order if he had not actually been the Lord himself in the flesh. And so Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And do you understand what that means? This is sovereignty language. This is kingship language. This is control language. And he's saying not just that he's the Lord of, of interpretation on what ought to be done and what ought not to be done, but he's the Lord of the Sabbath itself, the day itself. He's the Lord of the Sabbath because he's the one who created the Sabbath. He is the creator God from the very beginning. He is the one who spoke the seventh day into existence. He is the one who rested from his works and hallowed this day for all of his people. He is the one who thundered from Mount Sinai and whose finger wrote the Sabbath commandment on the tablets of stone given to Moses. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the unequivocal, unchallenged, ever-reigning Lord of the Sabbath, and he alone gets to determine how the law is intended and how it ought to be applied. Jesus is the Lord who appeared in the pre-incarnate whirlwind to Job. And Job and his friends are there, and they've got their own ideas of what is right and what is wrong, and they're going back and forth about what God ought to give to Job because of his life of sin or his life of righteousness. And the Lord shows up, and what does he say? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, says the Lord, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And Jesus is standing here saying, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And if these Pharisees were wise men like Job, they would have reacted the same way. They would have laid their hands on their mouth and said, I chose to speak, but I will not speak again. They would have humbled themselves before him. They would have bowed and confessed their uncleanness. They would have repented of trying to make the Sabbath something to suit their ends and to meet their expectations of what righteousness looks like in Israel. If they were wise men, they would have come to Jesus with the humility to learn about the Sabbath rather than the audacity to accuse him. If these were wise men, they would have come to Jesus as we all should, with a different question, Lord, how would you have me to use your day? 
The Sabbath belongs to you. How would you have me to submit myself to you? How would you have me to trust in your mercy? How would you have me to take hold of your promises and follow your example? How would you have me to use your day because the Sabbath day belongs to Jesus? The Sabbath day does not belong to the Pharisees, and the Sabbath day does not belong to the legalists, and the Sabbath day does not belong to your preacher, and the Sabbath day does not belong to you. The Sabbath day belongs to Jesus, and we honor the Sabbath day when we treat it as the Lord of the Sabbath would have us to. This is the first thing we need to get straight if we're going to avoid the excesses of the Pharisees or if we're going to avoid the ignorance of our Christian culture. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a holy rest unto the Lord because the Sabbath day belongs to Jesus. So this is what he teaches them, and this is what he teaches us. The Sabbath belongs to Jesus. Now, it remains for us to consider how would the Lord have us to use his day? What is the, whole, the, the Sabbath day intended for? What's the purpose of it? And we see, secondly, in verses 6 to 11, that the Sabbath day is meant for mercy. Now, in verse 6, Luke is setting the stage for another miraculous work of Jesus. He says, On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. Now, we've seen this before. In fact, we've seen it repeated so often in the last two chapters of Luke that we know exactly where this is going before it ever happens. We don't have to read to the end of the chapter, end of the paragraph, to see what is going to happen when this man has a need and Jesus has compassion and those two coalesce. We know it's going to happen because we've seen it before. Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and there was a man there who had an unclean spirit. Jesus entered into Simon Peter's house, and his mother-in-law was there, and she was sick with a fever. Jesus was in one of the cities, and there came a man full of leprosy. Jesus was teaching, and some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. We know where it's headed. And so if you look at this man with eyes of faith, if you were there, you could look at him, knowing Jesus and knowing what he's up to, and say, this is a child of God who will get to return to work tomorrow for the first time in a long time. Here's a man who will be able to provide for his family, finally. Here's a man who will sing and shout for joy when the Lord does miraculous things. Here's a man who will be received at the gates of the temple the next time he goes because he's not maimed or lame. And you could look at this and you could say, this is what we see in him, but this is not what the Pharisees saw in this man. Because they could predict what Jesus was going to do as well. They had seen it enough. They knew that it was almost irresistible, if we could say it that way about Jesus. It was almost irresistible that he should be in the gathering of God's people and see someone in need and not help him. And so what they saw when they looked at this man was, here's our chance. If only Jesus would be foolish enough, they thought, to make some public move, then we would have the upper hand. Here's our chance to get him. If he does something, and, and I bet he will, because that's the sort of thing that Jesus does, if he heals him publicly in the sight of all the people, then we can run off and we can accuse him to the Jewish council. And so they watched, and they waited, and they held their breath. And Luke tells us that detail that ought to keep us awake at night. He says, Jesus knew their thoughts. In the midst of their conspiracy, and they thought that everything was so carefully guarded and hidden and that nobody else would know their intentions. Jesus knew their thoughts, just like he knows yours. For better or for worse, he knows your thoughts of frustration and exhaustion and anger and lust and conspiracy and hatred and pity 
self-congratulation. There is no secret sin. There is no hidden need that he doesn't already know about. And Jesus knew their thoughts, just like he knows yours. But knowing their thoughts, what did Jesus do? He did exactly what they wanted him to. Exactly what they wanted him to. They wanted him to make a big show and to heal this man publicly. And the next thing Jesus does is that he draws attention to this man and he draws them in the midst. The Greek actually says that he, he told him to come and stand en mezzo, in, in the middle of everything, right where everybody was looking, right where nobody could, uh, could uh, avert their eyes. It was a big screen, high definition display of his power. And nobody could avoid it. And he calls him up and then the tables are turned. Notice that in the previous section, it was the Pharisees who had their attempts at questioning Jesus. And now, verse 9, Jesus says, I ask you, it is, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful to save life or to destroy it? Now, if you're a Pharisee who has ever encountered a softball question, this is it. You should know by heart immediately what is the Sabbath for? Of course they know, especially these men who pride themselves in dictating how everybody else should keep the Sabbath. These men who like to tell others what they ought to do on the Lord's Day. This is an easy question. And maybe they all began reciting Deuteronomy chapter 5 to themselves. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What was the Sabbath for? day for mercy, it was a day for good, it was a day for salvation and restoration. Maybe they knew that. Maybe, maybe they began considering the way that the Lord gave the Israelites the Sabbath to remind them that they didn't live by their own toil, that even in harvest and even in sowing and reaping, they were to take a day off when all of the nations around them kept toiling and working because they thought they would get ahead by their industry and their strength. And the Lord says, no, you can trust in me. Maybe they remembered that. Maybe some of them looked at this man, and deep in their hearts they had a pity for him. As he was there, afflicted with this limb that just sort of hung there. And maybe they did, maybe they thought a lot of things, but one thing they didn't do was speak up. And they couldn't. Because they knew that if they acknowledged that the Sabbath was a day for good, then they could not work the evil that they were plotting against Jesus. It was exposing their hypocrisy. If they embraced, if they spoke what they knew, that the purpose of the law, they couldn't continue to use the law as a weapon for their own hateful purposes. But if they remained silent as they did, they remained condemned. Recognizing that they uh, were the ones in the Sabbath, in the synagogue, who were breaking the Sabbath. These men who knew every jot and tittle of the law, these men who knew it backwards and forwards, these men who refused to show mercy even though it was staring them in, fa in the face. But that's what the day is for. It's a day for good and for salvation. And the Lord is teaching us that the Sabbath day is meant for mercy. Now the question is, what does that mean for you? And what does it mean for me? And two things, I think, particularly. First, it means that we need to level the fact that Jesus' answer to the question of the fourth commandment is never to sweep it under the rug. You will search in vain for Jesus to say something along the lines of, don't worry about that one commandment out of ten. It's just ceremonial. It doesn't apply anymore. 
just like you will hope in vain and search in vain for Jesus to say, you know that seventh commandment that nobody likes? Let's just get rid of it. Jesus doesn't answer the problem of the Sabbath by getting rid of it. Jesus upholds the Sabbath. He maintains the integrity of the Sabbath because the Sabbath belongs to him and the Sabbath points to him. From the beginning of creation, the Lord established a pattern. Six days of work, one day of rest. It was the pattern. Six days you shall work, and one day you shall rest from all your labors, because the Lord has hallowed it. And then when the law was given to Moses, that day was fixed on the end of the week, the last day. But after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there was a change. And the Christian church began meeting on the first day of the week and worshiping on the first day of the week and showing mercy on the first day of the week, and they commemorated the mercy of God in the Lord's Day. That's what it became known as became known as the Lord's Day because it was the day that pointed to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And they gathered together, and that was their day for worship, to celebrate that all that God had done in Christ. Because God is merciful, he still calls us to that pattern, that faithful routine of one day in seven to come away and remember his redemptive power. A day that we remember that we were slaves to sin. And that the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand and two outstretched arms and the cross of Calvary. And the Lord's day is meant to be a whole day, not just a morning. Not just a few hours, if you can squeeze it in, but it's meant to be a whole morning where we remember the grace of God. We receive with humility and wonder and wide-eyed amazement. The Lord's day is when believers gather to hear the mercy of God to undeserving sinners, but it's also our day of mercy toward one another. There is a progression that I have noticed uh, in Presbyterian churches, though I've only been a Presbyterian really for about a decade. Uh, but there's a progression that I've noticed in these churches that we, we love the Sabbath, and every once in a while you'll watch somebody go through this process of being convinced that the Sabbath actually still is a treasure that God gives to his people and commands of his people. And they go through this process first of demolition and then of construction. It begins by somebody being convinced of the Lord's Day, and, and they begin to ask the question, what do I need to get rid of? What do I need to tear down? What am I doing on the Lord's Day uh, that I ought not to do? And I, I will try to remain from, uh, refrain from Pharisaical legalisms, but it's a house-cleaning process. They say, what can I do to clear my day for the worship of the Lord? Maybe it's commerce. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's idleness. Maybe it's indulgence. What are the things that I can rid my Sabbath celebration of? And that's a good question. What are the things that we ought not to do on the Lord's Day? But a much better question, and one that proves that Christian maturity is really taking root, is the question of what can I do on the Lord's Day? That's what the Lord's Day was always about. Not just a ceasing, but a ceasing from labor so that we can give ourselves to those other things that we can't fit in, all those mercies the Lord has called us to, all those service to one another that we don't have time for in the middle of our week. Our schedules are busy. That is one of the biggest problems that I deal with in my ministry to all of you is that we're running around crazy and saying, how do I find time for a spiritual life? How do I find time for hospitality to my neighbors? How do I find time to engage my children with the gospel? How do I find time to pray with my spouse? Where do I fit it all in? And the Lord says, I've given you a whole day. What can you do on the Lord's Day that you can't do in the rest of the week? There is a day set aside for mercy. How do I follow the example of my Savior? This is what we ought to be asking. Who is there in the church that I can pray for on the Lord's Day? Which one of our missionaries that we list each week in our bulletin would really appreciate a card or an email or a phone call? 
which one of my coworkers, which one of my neighbors can I invite in for hospitality? And maybe we strike up a friendship, and maybe I'm able to speak about the grace of Jesus Christ. Where are the shut-ins that we haven't seen in church for weeks, months? And who's caring for them? And what can we do on the Lord's Day? What good can be done? This is what the Sabbath is meant for. That's why the Sabbath day, the Lord's Day, was typically reserved on Christian calendars for acts of service and kindness. This was the day that people went to visit in the nursing homes and the shut-ins. This was the day that we ministered to one another. It was a day for evangelism. And it's not just because Presbyterians are legalistic busybodies. It's because the Lord has shown mercy to us, and there's no better way to celebrate that mercy for the whole day than to spend it in worship and service and hospitality. So this is what we're learning in this passage, is that the Sabbath day belongs to Jesus, and the Sabbath day is meant for mercy. And I think we need to ask ourselves the question. I want to leave you with that question to discuss among your family, with your friends. What can you do on the Lord's day? What mercy can you show that you don't have time for the rest of the week? What is this blessing the Lord has given to you? What is this treasure that he's given so that we would be his people, not only here while we gather, but also in the world? So that we would go from this place and say, the Lord is merciful and let me show you how merciful he is by following his example. That's the question we need to ask. And it all comes back to the fact that the Sabbath belongs to Jesus and the Sabbath is a day meant for mercy. Let's pray together. Oh, glorious and righteous Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you do not Treat us as our sins deserve. You do not treat us even though we think uh, that by our obedience we can put you in our debt. You do not treat us uh, as our indignity and our, our indecency deserves and our, our arrogance in thinking uh, that you uh, should be beholden to us, that you are merciful to us and have sent Jesus Christ, our true Sabbath rest, to be our merciful Savior and to save us from sin. So, O oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand not just what Jesus has done, but what the Sabbath is for. Help us to embrace the Lord's day. Help us to grow in an understanding of what you call us to. And make us more and more your servants in hospitality and in love and in mercy to those who are around us. We pray that you would speak and move in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.